you'd open your books, or your books, or your Bibles, to Lamentations, chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, we know we come to you often asking for you to, to bless us. And Father, we do so because it's right for us to do that. We know, Lord, that we are needy, we are not self-sufficient, and that we are dependent upon you for everything. And Father, even as we seek to really fulfill our duty to reverence who you are, to give you the adoration and the worship that we know that you rightly deserve, Father, even in that, we need your help. We need you to, to bless us so we can do so, Lord, in a way that really is acceptable to you. Because, Father, we do want to honor you in every way. So, Father, we ask that you would uh, bless us as we do these things that we've committed ourselves to, to, to the singing of hymns and songs to, to who you are and also rehearsing the truths of your word that we may be reminded of them. Again, as we bow together in prayer, as we confess our sins, as we acknowledge your greatness, your desire to forgive and the gift of Christ, the reading of your word, Father, from the Old Testament, and Father, as we given of our tithes and offerings, we ask for your blessing on that, that we may have wisdom, that, Lord, that we may use the funds that are given to the church in a way that honors you and continues to support the work that we are doing both here and abroad for the cause of Christ. And then, Father, once again, as we, at this portion of our service, turn all of our attention on your word and what it says, we desire, Father, to hear from you. Because of that, that's why we open the book. And that's why we read the words and the pages that have been preserved for us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would grant us our desire, giving us understanding of your word. The Father, we may grow and mature in the Spirit of God. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Lamentations chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on the delicacies perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of the form was like sapphire. And now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier with the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed 
its foundations. When it comes to the book of Lamentations, which we have been studying and reading through over the past several weeks, and after we have finished a couple of weeks where really I believe that there was great, a great sense of hope that was given to us through Lamentations and through the Word of God, Jeremiah goes right back to describing in really graphic detail what is going on and what is happening to those in Israel. Chapter 4 is considered by many to be the most graphic in the book because of how it describes the physical suffering of the people of Jerusalem. Back in the beginning when we read, when he talks about gold and precious stones, the idea is to kind of imagine those things, what they look like in their beauty, and then compare it to the color of ash, the gray, the charcoal, you know, the darkened skin where, you know, all the color is gone because of the great destruction that's taking place. Again, the famine is really taking its, its toll on the people. Jeremiah has compared the, inhabit, the inhabitants of Jerusalem not only to gold as far as this contrast of color, but in its preciousness. The idea is that gold is precious, these other stones are precious, and, and we, you know, we kind of treat them with delicacy and, and with um, a sense of awe. And then, of course, he compares it to the people that they're, in one sense, so much more than that. But like the gold is just kind of lying on the street, the precious stones, they mean nothing to anyone. When there's no food, those things don't mean anything. And, of course, the people are, are strewn around in that sense. So he really wants us to get a sense. I think that part of, the, part of what's important about that, just on a, as a side note, in a sense, is because of the society we live in, which isn't bad. You know, God has, has chosen when you and I were born and, and where we were born. We, we can have this idea that when it comes to even great suffering, that it should be short-lived. Whether it's weeks or maybe that months is considered to be a long time. And a year is also uh, viewed as almost being just uh, unbearable. But the time frame that God has is completely different. And, and the idea here is he, he does want to draw the, the picture for us of the absolute and complete hopelessness of the people. In other words, if God doesn't act, this is all there is. That's the idea. To really throw us to force us to this great dependency upon God, that he is really our only hope, period. Modern medicine may fail you. Our economy may fail you. you know, even in our society, when we have difficulties, I mean, if you think about it, we, our, our difficulties, though the news and people can get really upset, it still is way better than it is in other countries. You know, we talk about the, the supply chain being all messed up. We all still go to Kroger. There may not be 15 kinds of apples, but there's nine kinds, you know. There may not be three different types of oranges, there's only one. You may go and say, I can't believe it, they have no grapes. But there's still just this unbelievable amount of food and selection that's there. We, we talk about gas prices and how gas, and I look, I hate that too. And I have all my opinions about why it's that way and how it should be different and whatever. And everyone's always afraid at times that there's going to be a gas shortage. But we still drive around. I mean, we, I mean, it's just people still plan their vacations. And there may be a few that end up, you know, canceling them because of this or that. But, you know, we, we, our suffering 
uh, is really relative. There are people still dying to be in our position. When, when the infrastructure of other countries falls apart, I mean, they, I mean they're hurting. I mean, they, they, they don't have anyone else to turn to. There's nothing. When we're hurting, well, Kroger's out. I wonder what the Publix has. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, now, I'm not saying it may not get worse. It may be, but that's kind of the idea. So as a result of that, we are very accustomed to our suffering being very short-lived. So this graphic picture, we, must, we need to force ourselves to use our imaginations and really embrace what he's talking about. It's not so much that because we might go through it one day, even though it's true, but so we recognize their plight and this hopelessness that they are experiencing. So that when we experience maybe a sense of hopelessness, which I'm not saying that, you, that our sense of hopelessness is not real, even though we may not be in as a bad of a situation as they were in, it's still very real to us. God really is the answer. He really is the one that we turn to. He's the really one that we put our hope in. Because man will fail. And he will fail more than once. The enemy had regarded the citizens of Jerusalem really as being just nothing. Their lives meant nothing to them. The Chaldeans had just smashed a lot of them. In fact, he talks about these, the, the pots and earthen vessels. That's the kind of the idea back, back then they even had uh, what we have now, that when, when you break certain dishes, you just throw them away. You, you don't even bother to fix it because it's cheap. It, it's taken certain generations a while to get used to that. I remember the first time I was having a lunch with a good friend of mine. I was in my 40s and he was in his 70s. And I was wearing the most famous of all watch brands, Casio. It was, uh, it, it, I got it from Walmart and it was $6.99. And I wore it and, and I had worn it for two years and the battery stopped. And so I mentioned to my friend, I said, oh man, my watch has stopped. So I took it off and put it on the table and I said, well, I'll just throw it away and get another one. He's like, what? And he, he, that's what he said, that is sinful. I said, what? He said, I can't believe that you would do that. So I explained to him, I said, well, you know, I, I could... I guess I could get another battery, which would cost more than the watch, and cost more money to get that thing fixed. If I just go buy another one, it's cheaper. So it was made to be thrown away when it stops working. There's really, there's really no way to get into it. I have to super glue it back together if you do all that. He, he just, I mean, he was just, he was, he was just convinced it was sinful. I told him it wasn't, and I'm still throwing it away. I'm not getting it fixed. <laughs> all right, so he had to get used to that idea. Well, they were viewing people that way. And of course, we know we live in a society that we're kind of on the edge of that. We hear about it all the time. An individual gets mad for whatever reasons, whether he's angry at his family or, or angry because of some political thing, and they go and shoot people they don't know. Like, what is that? Well, what that is, is that it views human life in very low regard. That's what that is. There's many things going on. That's one of them. And that's kind of how the, the Chaldeans were, how they treated the, the people of Israel when they came in. The horrors of the siege of Jerusalem turned to a very unappetizing section that we read where it talked about, talked about compassionate women. And, and that, that is used to describe them to show us the contrast that these women who were known for being compassionate were now willing to feed themselves with their own children. The idea of eating them, of boiling them. In fact, it says the jackal at least will nurse their young. These children were suffering really because of the sins of their parents. These infants had become so weak from starvation that they were no longer crying out of hunger. So these previously compassionate women were boiling their own children and eating them 
to sustain their lives during the siege. Some have assumed that, oh, well, what was going on there, as if it's better, which it's not, that they were only eating children who were already dead. I don't know if that's true or not. But we could hardly imagine a more shocking and a sickening image. However, let's just stop and think about that for a minute. Now, how appalling that is, that they would boil their children and then carve them up and eat them because they're starving. How is that different than abortion? See, our society screams. If they hear me say that, they would scream that I'm being overly dramatic, that there's no relationship. Well, if you assume that what's in the mother's womb is not a human being, then I guess you could say that, but it is a human being. And on one hand, though this is a horrible contrast, people aren't aborting their babies because they're starving. It's convenience. That's, in the end, that's what that is. It interferes somehow with their life, for whatever the reason. So we actually, we're the same. We're no different. Compassionate women killing their babies. And we live with that. I'm not saying you and I are not disturbed by it. It's disturbing, very disturbing. But we, our society is not different than them. It's the same. And it's sad to say that in some circles where people call themselves Christians, they still will, in, maybe in a passive way, promote this. Or, I think, be too quick to support those who go in this way. So today is not better than before. We're just as barbaric. Verse 6 says, For the chastisement of the, of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. So the contrast he's making there, everyone was familiar with, with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The idea was that that was a quick punishment. It, boom! They were, you know, they were killed in a day, and it was over. This is this ongoing suffering. That's why he makes the comparison that the one who died by the sword has done much better than the one who's dying from hunger because of the slow, agonizing death that they're experiencing. It is hard for us to really understand that, that an individual is actually thinking that to be killed instantly is better than my life now. I don't know about you, but when I, when I hear about individuals who commit suicide, it is very, very difficult, and I've not done this. I've not been able to. I'm unable to actually imagine being at a point in my life that the taking of my life seems like a viable option, like it's a good idea. I, I can't... I can't get there. I try to get there so I can understand, but I can't get there. I just can't wrap my mind around it. It's, it's impossible. I, I feel for, and I, and, and I can agonize for what that person is going through. But to get to that point, I'm not grasping it. And I've read all kinds of books on it, trying to really get a good handle. And I can understand it intellectually, but I don't have a sense of it. That kind of hopelessness, just, I've been blessed by God. I've never experienced that. And I know many of you have never experienced that. Some have, where you've had that, you know, you've gone to those dark places where you've dwelt on it. I don't mean we've had a flash, but the idea where you've dwelt on that as being something that is, well, if this doesn't work out, I can always do this. Here, when he, when he talks about this, he, he has, there's a statement at the end of verse 6. It says, no hands were wrung for her. 
Uh, some translations may say, or no hands were turned toward her. So what is that talking about? Well, there's, some, there's a few views on that. So some say that it seems to be either Sodom was destroyed with no one lifting a hand against her, meaning it was clearly just done by the Lord. You know, hail and brimstone came from the sky. Or, you know, it was, there was no human armor used. Or maybe, maybe what was being emphasized there is no hand was lifted to help her in the calamity. So which of those, I don't know, I don't think we can dogmatically say it's one or the other. And I'm not sure that it matters at that point, but it's just something to take note of. But the main point is, is that Jeremiah is saying that this calamity is worse or is a greater punishment than what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah just because of the ongoing suffering. This verse explains again what I said before about verse 9, happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. But then moving on, look at verse 11, and I'll, and I'll start reading from there. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. So that does explain a great deal, that God is pouring out his wrath. You know, when we ask God for mercy uh, in situations, what we're asking God to do is to not do that. Let's say that, let's say you or someone you know is being punished for sinful decisions or what have you, and we ask God to be merciful. We know that God is angry, we know that God disciplines, that God will pour out his wrath on sin. When we're asking for mercy, we're saying don't give them what they deserve. So if they get anything less than what they deserve, then that would be merciful. But if a man commits a crime and he deserves a 20-year sentence and he gets a 10-year sentence, that's merciful. He's not getting the full 20. You know, if someone deserves death for what they've done, they're given life in prison, that's considered merciful because he's not giving... The, so that's the idea is, is here he's saying God is giving full vent to his wrath. He gives us a picture of, of the judgment to come. That when it comes, it, it's, it's bad when it takes place. And again, it is a righteous judgment. God is not evil when this happens. He's not wrong when this takes place. He poured out his, his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed his foundation. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Verse 13, take note of this, because we're going to come back to this at the end. He says, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. So the leaders, the, which in Israel is always religious leaders, they have failed Israel. So not only have, has the nation sinned, the people in the nation gone away and worshipped idols and all the things that go along with that, they were being led in this direction by her leaders, by her religious leaders, by the priests, by the, the ones who call themselves prophets. They were leading the way in this. So again, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and, wa fugitives and wanderers, uh, people said among the nations. They shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priest. No favor to the elders. Our eyes failed ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which uh, could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our end had come. 
Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. So it goes through all of this. Basically, wherever they go, they, there were soldiers out to get them, out just to beat them for fun. It didn't matter if they were in the streets, if they were out outside the city limits and they were in the wilderness, they were, they were pouncing upon them. This was just nonstop. It was constant. That's what was going on. Someone once said this about when they were writing about all these things that Jeremiah is describing in the fall of Jerusalem. One commentator said, Jerusalem's fall in 586 B.C. also exposes their false assurance and does illustrate a theological truth of Scripture. Sinful and rebellious people, even if outwardly associated with the covenant community and the promises of God, should not presume on his protection. The idea was that if I'm connected to the right people, I'll be, I'll be safe as well. I'm not righteous, but I'm going to be with those who are righteous, and then it's going to be good for me, that kind of thing. People have done that financially. Uh, I think I've shared with you a long time ago, I once was considering um, selling life insurance when I was looking for work when I was in my 20s. Uh, I'm not really a salesman, but I was studying for the test, and in this test, in the study booklet, it actually said this. It was giving advice to those who were selling life insurance, and the advice was, look for a big active church in your town. And it didn't use the word networking, which we use today, but the idea was, look at all those contacts. You, know, you, you can contact all these people you rub shoulders with to basically, they become you know, targets for you to, uh, to um, sell your insurance and make money. I don't know why, it just kind of struck me as, that's just so wrong. I'm picking a church because of all the contacts it has. I mean, I just, you know, it didn't matter. I didn't take the test. Didn't sell life insurance. But the idea is, is that you can associate with some group and be successful because they're successful, or associate with a group because they're safe, then you'll be safe. That kind of a thing. There are some in our country who thought the same idea. The, the idea is that if, at least if we associate with being Christian, or we associate somehow with the Bible, that somehow then that will be, will be protected. That doesn't cut it that way. Again, there is still hope as there was before. Look at verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. So it's hope for Jerusalem, not much for Edom. So the idea is that it's, you know, God pouring out his wrath, it's run its course. It's been accomplished. What the Lord wanted to accomplish, he's accomplished. Edom has been kind of rejoicing over what's been going on. They, a lot of times, Edom rejoices over the catastrophe that hits Jerusalem or hits Israel. And God turns to them and says, you're next. So don't be so happy. What happened to them is now coming your way. You will not escape judgment. So the, Edomite, the Edomites, who they were physically related to the Jews, again, they are rejoicing over Judah's destruction, but they were about to be overtaken. They would have to drink the cup of Yahweh's judgment, and they would lose their self-control and their self-respect. What's interesting is after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar allotted the rural areas of Judah to Edom. 
as a reward because they were politically neutral. It was kind of a recognition for the active help which, which they had given the Babylonian military units during the final days of the campaign. So they're re relatives of those who are suffering, and they're giving aid to the enemy. Oh, come, stay in our house. We'll feed you. Come, you can set your camps up in our, in our country. No problem. And so they were rewarded for that. Oh, we, we've taken over Israel. Uh, hey, Edom, we're going to give you these, you know, the countryside here. You can have that because you treated, you, you, were, you were good to us as we were coming against them. You know, that was going to backfire on them. Jerusalem's punishment had reached its end. Their exile would not last forever. And so Israel and Edom were about to swap places. And again, there's this idea of Zion drinking from God's cup of, of wrath. You'll notice that throughout the Bible, I, I believe it's consistent that when the word cup is used symbolically, it usually deals with the pouring out of the wrath of God. And so that's where I get the idea. I didn't, it, I'm not, it's not original with me, but the idea that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying and he asked the Father to let this cup pass, some, I think, have misunderstood that and said that he was afraid to die. He was not afraid to die. That's why he had come. He made that clear in his teaching that he came for that purpose. But I believe that it was at some point revealed to him that he was going to have to drink the full cup of the wrath of God. And so he's, he's not asking to escape death. I think he's asking to, you know, I don't want to suffer the wrath of God, but your will be done. He was submitting completely to the will of God uh, in, in, in the uh, drama of the atonement. And so here we see, we see the same thing where it speaks of the cup and drinking from the cup of God's wrath and how, again, they're not going to escape. And the idea is that it's, it's going to be, it's, it's being poured out on them. And so it's, it's going to be just as devastating as it is. It's not just going to be this little sprinkling of suffering. It's going to be complete and full in every way. It is interesting in the Hebrew language when it comes to this fourth chapter, um, which is a, kind of the fourth acrostic poem, is the word T-A-M, tam, which means completed. So the very last word then in chapter four is the word completed. The idea is that this is now, this is over. It's been accomplished. There's a closing note of certainty and there's a bright future uh, for the one reading the book. But even though the last word in chapter four is um, completed, the end of chapter four, it's just an interlude. It's a point of calm in the midst of the storm because when we get into the fifth chapter, uh, once again, we're going to find ourselves in the midst of questions and doubts of all that God is doing. Again, reiterating this idea of the full wrath of God, it completing its purpose. Uh, it's going to accomplish all that God wants it to accomplish. So it, it can give us an idea sometimes of maybe the suffering that we go through. That again, God has, you know, I think there are many reasons, many purposes that God has in our suffering. And one of those is to root out sin or to root out sinful attitudes to help us to mature. And so God is the one who determines what that point is, what, what the purpose of all that is. And so we want to know when is this going to end. It's, it's going to end not only when God determines it. It's not just a, a vague point in the future. It's when he accomplishes the work in you he wants to accomplish. And so that's why we need to, to be submissive to God and to his word and, and, be, and be seeking to learn what it is that God wants us to learn. Not only because we want the suffering to end, which would be normal, but the idea is, is that God's going to make sure this is done. And, and, and he's going to complete that in you. No matter how stubborn you are, and of course the more stubborn you are, the worse it can be in that sense. It's not a threat for us to be afraid of God, to live in terror of him, because God is our loving father. But there's also this idea that God has a purpose for you and for me. 
And, and there is a common purpose in all of us as believers that God is going to create the image of his son in you and in me. And he's going to root out those things that interfere with that, those things that, that hinder that. And so maybe that explains sometimes the, the elongation of, of how much suffering a person or you, maybe you may be enduring. As we grow tired of these things, we need to keep that in mind, that God is doing that work in us and that God views that work as being valuable, as being important. If we view the character of Christ in us in the same vein, I believe that our, just our view of our suffering will become very different. We will see it as a tool that God is using to eradicate from me that which I want to be eradicated. I really want those things to be erased from my life. And it is often through great pain and difficulty um, that that comes. It's true for most of us about in, in any aspect of life when we seek to discipline ourselves even. The idea is, is getting rid of some of these things. And here, this is the work of God in us. And so, again, our suffering is evidence for the believer that God is actively and intimately involved in your life. And though it may feel harsh and cruel, it's loving and kind because he's, he would never ask you to experience this alone. He promises he would never depart from us. When you and I are suffering, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave you and then come back later. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is continuous. God is with us throughout the entire course. And so we have him to depend upon. And even though we may not feel his presence or be aware of his presence, we live by faith. We know he is there. And he will not abandon us to it. Again, he says in verse 13, I said I'd come back to this. He says specifically, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priest who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. So in the end, as believers, what do you do if your religious leaders fail you? We've seen failure uh, of more, I guess we call this, it's not that they all intend to be celebrity pastors, but people who are well-known in the ministry, we've seen failure. What do we do? Well, there's several natural responses that we can have to that, which would be wrong. Sometimes we justify the sin of the leader because we're friends. We think, we're, we think what we're doing is giving them the benefit of the doubt instead of calling it what it is, so we justify their sin. Well, you don't really understand what they're going through. We do that a lot in life. You know, there'll be an individual who'll do wrong, or say, well, yeah, I know they've done that, but you have to understand what they've been doing. Okay, I can understand, but when does understanding of a, a harsh life justify you treating people like dirt? It doesn't do that. You know, I know that our backgrounds do have a, an influence on how we are and how we react in life. But remember, no matter how bad your background, it's never caused you to be anything. It can have great influence, but the Bible says when you become a Christian, you are what? A new creation. Old things are patched away. We may have certain tendencies to go in a certain direction when faced with certain difficulties, betrayal, whatever it happens to be in our life, but we're not stuck on that. Year after year, as we grow as believers, which we should be doing, we should be growing, those things should fall by the wayside. So then that when people meet us, there is no indication that you had a horrible upbringing in life. What we should be is amazed at the wonderful grace of God and the kind of person you become. That through God's grace, you have completely overcome. And we can do that. So we need to stop doing that, whether it's with leaders or anybody else. 
Again, we, we want to use that in understanding and developing our patience in working with an individual, but it never excuses them. Sometimes we ignore their sin because we're affiliated with them or the way they live in some way. It could be that uh, when it comes to certain leaders, we just don't deal with their sin publicly, as, even though the Bible calls us to do so. We may use their sin as an excuse for our own sin, which does happen a great deal. It doesn't mean that you've said that, but sometimes we tend to shy away from certain things because, you know, it's the good old boy system. I won't talk about your sin, you can talk about mine. You know, that kind of thing. And that's just not a Christian view of living life. We don't want to go there. Sometimes we fail to learn the lesson that all of us are vulnerable. We just kind of, we just ignore it. We want to get away from it. Um, that's just our reaction to it. Maybe we fail to see ourselves as a candidate for the same sin. That's what we need to remind ourselves. We, we look sometimes at certain individuals and the things that they fall into, and we think, yeah, well, I would never do that. Don't be careful. I'm not saying that you will do the exact same thing. What causes others to sin lives in us as well. And we need to recognize that, that we are vulnerable. We are not better than they are. It could be going back to maybe something we've said before, and that is we may hold leaders, we may fail to hold leaders accountable for their actions. We fail to do that. And, and we must do that. I've always thought in this church, and I think it's just a natural thing, I'm pretty certain. I get involved in sin, there's a bunch of people on my doorstep. People just, they're just not going to have it. That's a good thing. I think it's great. You don't want to be in a position where the pastor's never confronted, where the leader's never confronted. That's just, that's not healthy. It's not that we're looking for dirt because we want a confrontation, but you know, there's too many, there's God. I, I've even been in a situation before where I was an interim pastor to church and I was just kind of thinking about how everything is laid out, how things went. And I was thinking, you know, there was no one holding this office accountable in this church. The, the guy sitting here can do whatever they want. That is not healthy. Not healthy at all. Sometimes what can happen is we can, we can fail to restore a fallen leader with grace. Now, I, I do think that when a leader fails, uh, there needs to be a very thoughtful, thought-out avenue as to how discipline and, and how long that takes for that person's restored to ministry. In some cases, I don't think they can be, though they should be restored to fellowship. There's a difference. But sometimes what happens is, is we can be overly harsh as well. So we want, to be, we want to be careful of that to make sure that doesn't happen. And then, of course, sometimes what happens is when the dust settles, we, sometimes we just wallow in despair and self-pity. So this is where the gospel enters. Remember that people who disobey God are set on a certain path of destruction. Like a rogue nation, they cannot change trajectories. But God always offers a way of escape from his pending judgment. God saves us from God. This is the good news of the gospel. For the believer and the non-believer, what's the call to the believer who gets caught up in sin? Turn to God. Repent of your sin. This is not you getting saved again, but as an individual who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the normal, natural thing you would do to fight against sin in your life. It's also the same call to the non-believer, who also cannot change the trajectory of their life. Turn to God, repent of your sin. He will forgive you and he will enter into your life and you have a new life. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is there for us at every moment of our lives as individuals, believers and non-believers alike. The gospel is not something only that we at one time believed in. 
We are believing it all the time. And it applies to my life as an individual. God's wrath does hang over every non-believer. And for the believer, we know that God's justice and his desire to discipline his own, is a very, his own people is a very real thing. All sins will be punished. Remember that only God can save from God. Let me read to you from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 50, verse 20. It reads this way, In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity, iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none, and sin in Judah, and none shall be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. God does redeem his people from his own judgment. God's redemption is there for us of salvation. And God's ongoing redemption is for all of us who believe that he can, he can deliver us from the snare of sin. He can set us again on the path to righteousness, to live in, uh, in the, the blessedness of God's favor. We, we must examine ourselves as Jeremiah has said before. Examine your life. Confess your sin. No matter, no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what it is you're struggling with, don't just wallow in self-pity and despair or think that you are somehow a victim. You are not. You are, as a believer, a child of the king. Apply what it says in the book of Hebrews. Boldly approach the throne of God. You will find grace in your time of need. It is there. Do not be stubborn and stiff-necked like those who do not believe. Don't be like them. And remember that we don't lose hope for those who don't know Christ. Because the same gospel that has saved and delivered you and me can and will save and deliver them. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that the graphic images that are given to us here in Lamentations will be those that will stay with us for a while. And that we will recognize, Lord, that when it comes to the judgment of sin, it's a very real thing. That it is not pretend, that it is not soft, there's no play acting. There's, there's a harshness that, that, is, that is there. In the same way that when in sin, there is, that, that when sins are committed, there is violence and there is suffering and there is death. And there is turmoil and chaos and ugliness. All of that is there in the punishment of sin. Where we reap in full measure what we've sown. For those of us who believe, Father, we thank you for delivering us from the judgment to come. And Father, we pray for those here who do not know Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you will, that by your spirit you would strike them with the sense of the truth of your judgment. And that they will seek you. That they, were, that they would experience a very real conviction of their rebellion against God. And the sense of hopelessness that they live in now. And by your grace, Father, they will come to know Christ as their Savior. Father, we thank you once again for your faithfulness to yourself. We thank you for the truth of your word. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.